0: Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about D&D material being released on Foundry and why this is such a big deal. I'm also going to answer the question, is D&D Beyond killing 5e? I brought this question up before. The answer is no. And I have some, a little bit of data, flawed data, but a little data to say Mike Shea was wrong. And I want to talk about that. I'm going to talk about when to use complicated stat blocks for monsters and when we might want to use more simplified stat blocks for monsters as today's DM tip. And we're going to cover the final batch of questions from the January 2024 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome stuff. The City of Arches source book uncovered secrets volume one and two dedicated discord server the monthly Q&A and a whole lot more you get a lot of stuff for being a patron of Sly Flourish and you get to help me put on shows like this to the patrons of Sly Flourish thank you so much for your outstanding support this past week Wizards of the Coast or Foundry announced that they are now partnering with Wizards of the Coast to put official D&D material on Foundry this is a huge great awesome deal and i'll explain why first of all foundry is the second most popular virtual tabletop i'm pretty sure that that's true the top three being roll 20 which is number one by a lot foundry which is number two by a good deal and fantasy grounds which is number three and that means that the top three virtual tabletops available for tabletop role-playing games in general are all all have DD licensed material on them or soon will have dnd they do now it's just who has what and how much foundry was a really big one though because foundry is a very very popular virtual tabletop it's different than the other virtual tabletops and a lot of people use it and a lot of people have been using it with D and 5e material for years but wizards has never released anything to it before this was one of my little candles as I referred to them back when we were watching wizards of the coast behavior after the OGL thing, there was some questions that came to my mind about how do we keep track of whether or not wizards of the coast and Hasbro are being good stewards of the D and D brand and supporting the larger TTRPG hobby. Do they need to know they are a corporate company they're a publicly traded company they can do what they want they can just support themselves but they claimed to want to be supporting the rest of the hobby and they have done many things to support the larger TTRPG hobby there are some things they hadn't done and we're watching those. And so I've been referring to these as Mike's Little Candles. Things, lit candles are things that that Hasbro and watsy are doing that are making the larger TTRPG and the larger 5e hobby, because 5e to me is now a bigger thing than just D&D, that they're doing things that are supporting the larger hobby. And then there are things that they do that aren't supporting the larger hobby. And there are candles that are dark and go up and light up and then there are candles that are lit that go down. So we're going to take a quick look at those because I'm going to show like where this matters in that whole scheme is mike's little candles i have a link to this in the show notes so my whole point is like you imagine that you have these candles on a windowsill each one is either lit or unlit the lit ones are good things are happening the unlit ones are bad things are happening we want to watch dark ones go light we don't want to see light ones go dark there are some light ones that can never go dark i'll explain but yeah and so examples of lit candles things that wizards and hasbro have done that have really made the whole 5e and ttrpg hobby better including releasing the srd under Creative Commons license, a system reference document under a Creative Commons Creative Commons license was a huge, huge deal. It meant that 5e is ours and we can do whatever we want with it. Many companies have grabbed that and built their own companies. Yada yada. yada. They released in four other languages. That kind of happened in the latter half of last year, where they released it in Spanish, Italian, German, and French, I think. And that meant that now. Uh, um, people in other countries, people that speak other languages could take that material and use that to build their own products and their own RPGs and things like that. They're continuing to release current products, main products on uh, physically. Now we say like this one's flickering because they are releasing some products only on D&D Beyond that you can only get there. Those are really supplementary materials though. It's not main materials. It's not like they put Xanathar's Guide or an equivalent to, to Xanathar's Guide said it's only going to be on D&D Beyond. So really they're still releasing their books in physical versions and that's good. They're continuing to release D&D products in Roll20 yes, they have been. New, new products have been showing up on Roll20. They're continuing to release current D&D products on Fantasy Grounds. Yes, they've been doing that. They've been offering a non-exclusive license for third-party publishers. I talked about why it isn't necessarily a good sign that they're allowing third-party publishers, but one sign that is good is they are allowing non-exclusive licensing. Uh, Darrington Press can put the source sourcebook on D&D Beyond through their agreement, but also can sell it on their own store. They can also sell it on Demiplane, which they do. They can also sell it on DriveThruRPG RPG and other places. So that helps the larger community and watsi puts out free educator resources and a free pdf adventure out for kids again we want wizards is in a unique position to be able to reach out and get D into the, the the minds and into the tables of people that we can't reach and we want them focusing on that and they are doing so with that uh they had some promised yet unlit candle uh, they released the 2024 rule srd into the creative commons we don't know when they're going to do that we, we you know It took them two years to do it for the original 5.1 SRD. We shouldn't really be expecting any time immediate, but I would like to know what they're doing. That'd be really nice. One that they've have not done yet. was releasing the 3.5 SRD. They said they were going to do this. They said they were going to do it last year and they haven't done it yet. However, I don't think that's as big a deal as the fact that they have, this was my unlit candles that they had made no promises to do. And one of them was WotC releases D&D products on Foundry, right? I am moving that. We are taking that from the candles to a lit candle bang. And that to me is a very big deal for a few reasons that that I want to that I want to talk about. The first is that it shows that Wizards is willing to support other online tools than their own, which they could consider competitors, and yet they're still supporting them. I don't think it would have surprised anybody if wizard said hey for the future 2024 books we're only going to be releasing them on DD beyond they could say some bs statement like we think in order to have the best experience that we want to make sure that people are getting the kind of D that we think they should be getting so we're going to do it here you could totally see them saying that they didn't say that and they're not saying that instead they are saying no we are supporting Roll 20 we are supporting fantasy grounds we are now supporting foundry and we're going to have our own stuff I think that's smart for them because they get to be in lots of different platforms. It's wonderful for us because it means we can now choose which platform we want to use in order to run the games that we want to run. We now have a variety of different platforms and that's that's really outstanding. It gives us a wide range of different tools that we can use and we can choose whichever one we prefer or which one we've already invested in. So a lot of people have invested a lot of time and energy and money into Foundry and now they know that they're going to be getting it. The, the one really good thing Thing that we saw in this is they really they only did it with Shattered Obelisk or Fandelver and Below Shattered Obelisk, and they've done it. It happened a couple days ago. But they said that the reason why they're not moving. Uh, they're not adding the whole 2014 D&D works, the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual from the 2014 version, is because they expect to do it for the 2024 books, which means it sounds like, if we can read this correctly, they've already come to an agreement with Hasbro to do the 2024 books on Foundry. That's outstanding. That means the new books that are coming out are going to be not only available on D&D Beyond, which we can expect... And probably, because if they're doing it here, I don't know why they wouldn't do it on Fantasy Grounds and on Roll20, they'll probably be on those platforms too, which means D&D 2024 will be on a wide range of different platforms that you can choose. That is outstanding. That is that is very, very good news. And I'm, I'm very happy to see Hasbro do that, 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 to see Wizards of the Coast do that. So by supporting a wide range of digital tools, Wizards, in my opinion, is strengthening the larger D&D, 5e, and TTRPG hobby if they were to kind of suck everything in the big concern that I had, and we're going to get into how Mike Shea was wrong in a minute, please be excited for Mike Shea proving himself wrong. Uh, I was very worried that I'm very worried. It was my, it was my big concern in the hobby is that wizards of the coast and Hasbro was going to turn DD beyond and their own, including like the virtual tabletop and stuff. And they were going to kind of like close the walls on this. And, basically any of the new people that they were bringing into the hobby, they were going to bring them right into that tool and not let them ever go out again. And they weren't, they were going to say like, well, you can go to Fantasy Grounds, but we're not there. You can go play on Roll20, but we don't have the current books there. We only have the old crappy books from 2014. You don't want to play there. You want to play the good game, come here. I don't think it would have surprised anybody if they had done that. Right. But they're not doing that. And that's what I think is really outstanding. So I really applaud Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast for supporting the larger hobby by supporting other tools. Now, why it matters in particular about Foundry is Foundry is a really interesting VTT platform, unlike Roll20. A little bit more like Fantasy Grounds, but unlike Roll20, it is a self-hosted application. You buy the license once, you download it to your machine if you want, and you can host it yourself on your own machine through fancy port forwarding, or you can go to a provider that allows you to host Foundry and then run your players through your own instance of Foundry. So you get a software license. It is a one-time purchase. I think it's 50 bucks. It can be on sale sometimes. Uh, And you get that license key, and then you can use that license key. And your local copy is yours so you can move it from one machine to another you can zip it up and back it up including all of the mods and everything that you that you put on there so it's a different kind of instance than roll 20 foundry for example can't go down like roll 20 could do, go down if roll 20 goes down if they have a bad weekend and they go down um no one is playing anything on roll 20 same with DD beyond if dnd beyond has a problem and it goes down no one is able to use it and that's happened from time to time that's not true with foundry your instance could go down you could suck at managing it but not that doesn't affect anyone else so foundry itself if the servers go down if their license key registration thing goes down or anything like that it doesn't mean uh that your version of it won't go down now if you're on a hosting provider that is providing hosting for 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 foundry and that hosting provider goes down it could still go down but that doesn't mean all the other ones are going down so that makes foundry a bit more robust and i think fantasy ground's probably the same way it makes it a more robust platform a more resilient platform for hosting online games the other one is there is a very big community of and, and then and the application foundry itself is built to support this very big mod community many many different mods many tools many different ways to play it i have really not spent much time with foundry but this last weekend i said okay i'm gonna i'm gonna really dive in i've got some time free i have a license somebody gifted me a license if you're the one who gifted me the license please remind me thank you it was like three years ago somebody gave me a license to foundry and i never used it and i used it yesterday and i used it friday and i played around with it a lot and really it's a very interesting platform that's very hackable uh you know lots of different mods that you can bring in to do lots of different things and, you know, di- which is way different than like Roll20, where you kind of stuck with whatever tools Roll20 gives you. This one, no, there's a million tools that do a million different things uh, that you can install and run and, and kind of modify your own version of Foundry however you want. Very big, open community of people building tools, both paid tools and free tools to help you modify Foundry. It's a, it's a really interesting platform from that standpoint. So to now see that as also being an official, uh, an, a place where you can buy official licensed D&D material is outstanding. Another interesting thing though in this whole digital escape and I guess this really will get into my other my other topic is the what I'm going to refer to as like guerrilla interoperability that a lot of these tools already have ways to do sort of guerrilla level sort of single developer third party interoperability between these different platforms. Common examples are like Beyond 20. Beyond 20 is a Chrome plugin that you can run inside Chrome that will let you add DD Beyond dice rolls it will let you add dice rollers onto your DD Beyond character sheet that show up in Roll20. I think they also can show up in Foundry. I think, D, I think Beyond 20 now also connects The Foundry. But there's also the tools made by Mr. Primate on Foundry that let you import data from DD Beyond into your Foundry instance. Uh, Usually on a onesie and twosie basis, but you can bring over character sheets, you can bring over stuff. There's another tool called the I I tried this one out and it worked called the Monster Stat Block Importer, which lets you basically select the entire stat block for a monster in DD Beyond, paste it into a window in Foundry, hit go, and it creates a, a structured stat block for that particular creature in Foundry. All of these these tools already exist and they're all there because a lot of people use DD Beyond and a lot of people want to be able to use that in other platforms. Now, most of the time these interoperability systems are all connecting from DD Beyond to other things. And yeah, I haven't seen anything that goes across. For example, I haven't seen anything where like you can pull your data out of Foundry and move it to roll 20. Like that would be pretty extreme. But that would kind of be neat, right? Most of it is because DD Beyond is actually a relatively open platform. It's a web-based application. You can you can you know bring you know copy and paste text right out of it and move it to other things. There are there are things that DD Beyond has as a platform that makes it actually a pretty good platform to support this kind of interoperability and, and small one-off tools that let you do this interoperability. Other examples. Two other VTTs that don't currently have licenses for uh, any Wizards of the Coast and D&D material are Shard and Alchemy. Uh, I just played with Alchemy for the first time yesterday, too. Uh, Really neat, really slick, beautiful platform. And both Shard and Alchemy have ways for you to import your character from D&D Beyond into their platforms. So some work better than others. I noticed, like, some of my feet stuff got lost, or I guess it was my magic equipment got lost, uh, with one of the imports, but they do work and they they make it easier for you to say, yeah, I want to use this platform, but I want to use my character from D&D Beyond. So it's interesting to watch this sort of behind the scenes guerrilla inter- interoperability that's going on uh, that exists, but also now starting to see platforms that have this connection. One thing that they noted was, of course, there isn't any way to say if you buy a product on Foundry for D&D, you shouldn't expect that you're also getting it for D&D Beyond. So you still might have to choose like, well, am I better off buying on a D&D Beyond and then using the import features to get it over into my foundry site or should i instead be buying it on foundry that's a question you have to ask but also they're very different platforms i don't think we should be expecting that if you buy it on one platform it should work on all others because the kind of features that these different platforms have are very different the lighting effects and transparent walls and all all the kind of effects that you do in foundry for example you wouldn't expect to be able to transfer that over to DD beyond or to roll 20 or anything like that so the main thing is that core data and the real core data we care about is the core books, right? What we really care about is the core books. Everything else is sort of supplementary and we either get it or we don't or we use it or we don't, but we want the core books there. So the idea that the 2024 core books will be on Foundry and on I I presume on Roll 20 and Fantasy Grounds and d Beyond. That's great. It's just outstanding. It was I saw that and it was outstanding news. I know it's easy to like get caught in a trench of wanting to continually bash Hasbro and WotC for being bad stewards of D&D and it's easy to sort of get like tied into that and I really try hard not to do that like they make decisions that I don't agree with there are things that they do where I'm like "Eh, you know it bothers other people it doesn't bother me again if they're putting out exclusive products that are only available on D&D Beyond I kind of don't care unless those exclusive products really become something that we consider required but if they're putting out extra monsters or they're putting out extra uh, you know know a, a specific adventures that are only available there i mean there's lots of exclusive adventures from lots of companies all over the place so that to me isn't them you know s- building this walled garden that we're never going to be able to get out of it is much more about uh, getting those core books and the core engine of the game available in lots of different platforms so i'm very excited for this really really good news and i'm, I'm very happy for it this also leads into my second topic which is uh, mike shea you know titled mike shea was wrong and asking this question, is DD Beyond killing 5e? And of course the answer is no, right? We're not going to do clickbait. I think I'm going to do this as a clickbait thumbnail, but it's going to say no, because I don't like to put the clickbait thumbnail, but I have data to support this. So my ingoing hypothesis, I will explain what my hypothesis was, which I've talked about on a previous show. My hypothesis was that D&D Beyond was so popular as the central platform that was owned by the primary company that also makes the game that we would see more people moving into d and Beyond and using only d and Beyond. And because they use d and Beyond and they're so used to it, they won't be including any other options from other stuff, particularly character options from other stuff. And I felt like as that gravity well grows, we're gonna watch d become more insular and we're gonna see uh, other publishers of 5e material kind of pushed out because they're going to make lots of character options and no one's ever going to use them because they don't use them in ddb Beyond. so that was my hypothesis i talked about it on the show i talked about it in lots of other platforms uh, as well lots of conversations i've had with people about it and then i said well look, let me ask some pointed questions about how big a problem is this really now so i ran a bunch of polls and surveys of course polls and surveys are flawed data and i will explain how i believe some of these are particularly flawed in particular directions so these, these surveys are not representative of the TTRPG community overall. I think they are a pretty good representation of you because you're listening to me right now. And if you weren't listening to me, maybe you wouldn't have seen the poll. If you are listening to me, you might've seen the poll now. So I think it is a relatively well repre- relatively good, as good as I can get a representation of the people who listen to my nonsense. And if you're listening to my nonsense, I would bet that you fall into this category pretty well. I doubt it's off by a tremendous degree. But I will explain how I think that some of these polls are off from what the general RPG and D&D hobby probably are. So the big question is like, okay, first of all, how many people even use D&D Beyond? So I have three polls that really... Answer these questions. Three different polls that all answer these specific questions. And the first one is you know, DD Beyond Use. Who uses DD Beyond? This is done in 2023, October 18th, 2023. It was on YouTube. It got 3,300 respondents. The YouTube poll that I put up. Again, these are people who probably found my stuff. So it's better representation. And even then, it's not perfect. Selection bias and yada yada yada. Lots of people listen to my stuff, but don't answer polls. Yada, yada, yada. I get it. So we're not going to hang on too tightly. But I bet you it's probably pretty close. And it was how many people are using D&D Beyond? So this is a poll for D&D players and DMs. Do you regularly use D&D Beyond when preparing or for or playing D&D? Keep in mind, this is also not just online players. This is all players because D&D Beyond can be used at the table with a phone app or something like that. 38% said yes, they use it. 62% said no, they don't. So it's not even half of the people who follow me are using D&D Beyond to play D&D. So that all right there tells you that it can't be that big a problem because half of the people don't even use it at all. So whether or not, if they're not using it, then they're not limiting their source material and all that that stuff. So that's one bit of data. Then another bit of data is for DMs in particular, the poll for D&D and 5e Game Masters. Do you allow character options from publishers other than WotC in your 5e games? I published this a few, like, last week, something like January 22nd. I got 2,400 respondents to it. Uh, and I broke it down by often, sometimes, rarely, and almost never. Those are not perfect categories, but they match categories that I had used in other things, and that way I could do kind of a lineup. So, often, 33% said yes, they often allow character options from other, other publishers. Sometimes it was 37%. So between those, 70% of GMs either often or sometimes allow their players to bring in options from other other material than Watsi, seventy percent. Rarely and never, thirty percent. Rarely says eleven. Almost never says twenty percent. One in five GMs don't ever allow anything other than Watsi, but four out of five do it, and seven out of ten do it either sometimes or often. Okay, that's good. So that that told me, okay, well, seven out of ten is pretty good, right? I'm I'm pretty good with that, um, and it's actually better than we could think about it. I'll, I'll get to why it's even better than that. Uh, then do you use non wats Do you use them? So it's one thing for a GM to allow it. It's something else for people to actually use it. I might I allow it at my games, but my players are like, ah, I like DD Beyond. So we're just gonna use that. So then the question is, do you use non-Watsi character options? Right. So this is a question for D&D and 5e players and GMs. Do you or your players use character options from sources other than Wattsy? Different question. Do you use it? And the answer was said often, so one out of five, roughly, often use material, that 5e material that isn't from Wizards. 33% said sometimes, so that means 55%, more than half, are using options from other character options, other than those from Wizards, uh, more than half the time. At least sometimes or often. Now again, so the people that answered the survey, it's not representative overall of D&D rarely and never was 19 and 27%, which is like 45%. So you can almost say 50, 50, right? Like, again, we're not gonna get so tied to it that you would say about half of people do and half of people don't. I think that's a relatively fair assessment. Now, a big difference is this is people who listen to my nonsense. These are people who found my poll, not a general sample. So we can make the assumption, and I think it's a safe assumption, to assume there are a lot of people that are playing D&D that are not really paying attention to other material from other publishers stuff like that that's okay right that doesn't that doesn't bother me the fact that the people who are listening to my stuff that more than half of them not only that 70 percent seven out of 10 gms allow it you know often or sometimes and more than half use it that's really outstanding i feel that's really good especially when you consider how much bigger and how much more material by volume total volume Uh, has rose put out for D&D than other publishers not in the amount of titles but in the gravity well of D&D stuff like how many more copies of Xanathar's Guide are out there than um, any other character source book like character driven source book right we I, I think it's probably safe to be like 100 100 times as many maybe 10 times certainly more than 10. Maybe a hundred times as many, maybe. So that means we would expect people using Watson material almost exclusively. Anyway, the fact that even among the people who answered this poll is more than half, I think is a really, really good sign that people are both allowing it and using it. And those are really the things that I was worried about. I was worried about people not allowing other character options because they said no. D and D is official, and Midgard World, you know, the Midgard Heroes Handbook. That's not official. Who knows? That's p- practically homebrew, right? So we're not going to allow that, or the Hero, the the Toma Heroes by Cobalt Press. We don't want to use that, right? No, they're saying no. We can we use that stuff? Sure, right? We'll allow it. I'll seven out of ten GMs say sure. I'll I'll allow it, and more than half are like, yeah, I'll use some stuff from that. That's outstanding. That's that means that the to me what this. It fills my heart with joy and it fills my heart with joy because it makes me feel like the five V hobby is, is pretty healthy. If I'm able to reach people and I don't, I'm not claiming causality, but if the people that I generally talk to match the results that I'm seeing here, I feel like that's pretty healthy. I don't expect to be able to reach everybody in the hobby. And this gets into like, well, who do I care about? Right? Who do we, who do we hope we can reach? So. What we find is there are people who allow and use options from other player options. We've now seen that. I've seen results that tell me that people are doing that. Great. That's awesome. Super happy that people are expanding their view of 5e wider than just the stuff that they get from Wizards of the Coast for D&D. It's a very wide hobby. Lots of awesome supplements and lots of people using. This is just player stuff, too. We didn't talk about like GMs using monsters, which I assume is happening a lot more. It, we're, we're not even talking GM stuff. I think it's actually a lot easier to use GM 5e material, and I think a lot of people do, that isn't published by Wizards of the Coast. A, because I publish a lot of stuff like that, but also because I, that's where I sit, right? I'm a GM and I sit and I, there's lots and lots of GM supplements. It's a lot easier to use those supplements than I think it is to use character options in particular because they are very mechanically focused. You have to get your players to use them, and I, I expect that a lot of players use DND Beyond. Turns out, eh, I a little... A little less than half, right? I guess, was it 38% said no, that they do? So less than half. So there's those that group of people. Awesome. People who only use a preferred D&D material, but know that the other stuff exists. So if they've heard about this other supplementary material, but they're like, yeah, that's fine, but we're happy with what we've got with the stuff that's being published by Hasbro for D&D. That's fine too. At least you know about the stuff. You get to make that choice. My goal is to show you some of the other interesting things and maybe try them out once in a while. I think that'd be great. You don't have to, your game is your own. You're happy. I'm happy. I think playing TTRPGs is more important than anything else. So, you know, I don't I'm as long as you know about it. Now there are people who only use DNA material but could be interested in other publishers. Well, let me tell you about some of the other stuff that's coming out, right? One of the things that I do on the show is try to show these other publications, show other work that expands the game in lots of really fun and interesting ways. I want to tell you about that stuff. And then there are people who look play D&D but never look at anything else. They don't even know that it really exists. They've never even thought about other third-party character options. And I would actually expect that's fewer than we think. I think that GMs do a lot of Googling. I think they do a lot of searches. I think they hang on our Reddit. I think they go to places and they learn about other supplementary material. I think the world is different today than it was 15-20 years ago. And I think that i i would expect i don't have the data to back this up so this is just a belief right this is just a thought you know if i'm going to be all sciencey it's a hypothesis if i'm going to be like you know dogmatic it's a belief that i have i i would expect that gms are more connected to D than we think like the, the ones that we don't really hear about the ones that aren't like you know into the hobby all the time like we are i still bet they're connected enough that they've heard about other material but I still think if they are not aware of it, well, one of the things we can do is try to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, there's these other stuff. I can talk about the Monstrous Menagerie. I talk about the Monstrous Menagerie all the time. Flea Mortals, right? All these other books that exist, all these other source books that exist that can expand 5e in all kinds of new and interesting ways. I'd like to reach out to them and show them. And that's my kind of my goal, right, is to one of my many goals. But my real goal is to make the game strong for GMs. I want to help GMs run great games. And one of the ways that I can help GMs run great games is to show them how resilient the hobby is and how wide the hobby is to try out all kinds of different things to find the stuff that we love that makes our games good. And what these polls have shown me is that we're open to it. And that I think is great. And that's why I think my overall assessment that I was too worried about D&D Beyond being this closed garden that wizards would bring people in and they would never leave. And everyone was using D&D Beyond. No one was using anything outside of it. GMs weren't allowing it and players didn't want to use it is now false. I have data to show me that at least for the people that are following my stuff, that is false. Hence, that's why I'm wrong. And then, of course, there's another group of people who don't play 5e. That's fine, right? You you have your other games that you love. I I love you. I love other games, too. I I have no no argument with you. If you if you I don't I don't need to hear from. I don't even play Five E. I don't like it. Okay, awesome. And you got a thing you love and you're playing and it's great. That's great. You know, no no shade on any of the systems. And and I think that that is uh, uh, that that's an important point. So those this is all very heartening news. Like that both of these things, like these two things. I was planning on talking about this this week anyway, and then the thing with Foundry happened at the same time. And I was like, man, it's going to be a Wizards of the Coast love fest on the talk show this week and I think it is like I think that the hobby I think it's a love fest for the hobby and I think that the hobby is stronger than I thought it was and I'm happy to see it and I'm just super eager to see where this year goes there's some really exciting things coming out this year I'm going to talk about these exciting things I'm going to talk about 5e i'm going to talk about and i'm going to talk about other rpgs we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff because this hobby is such an outstanding hobby i i love it dearly and it's when the, the the more that i see actual evidence that shows me that it's as strong as it is the happier i am so very happy for all of that if you're a fan of shadow dark i'm a huge fan of the shadow dark rpg by kelsey Dion over on the arcane library If you're listening to this on the podcast or you're watching this on the video and you happen to be watching on Monday, February 5th, you can go buy the physical versions in print. I highly recommend, if you can get them, uh, getting the... The Quick Start Guides. You can buy physical versions of the Quick Start Guides. Nice little booklets that you can use, that you can throw into your bag. Go to a convention. Go to your friend's house and play uh, Shadow Dark with Jesse's thin books. But also, the physical book is outstanding. It's a really beautiful volume. Uh, a lot of times, with these small print runs, they go out. Like they they make a print run. They make them. They put them up for sale, and then they are done. They 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 sell out of the ones that they've got. So, if you want the physical version of Shadow Dark, and I think it is an outstanding physical product like i mean i think it's an outstanding game period but i think it really really holds together well as a physical product check out the shadow dark rpg you can buy it off of the arcane library store on beginning on monday i don't know how long it'll last it could be an hour right they could be all gone in an hour i couldn't say i don't know how many print copies they have really outstanding print products i am super glad that i backed the print Versions and got a lot of really cool stuff from them for the Kickstarter. So that's that's very cool. So check that out if you have not. If you're a fan of Shadow Dark RPG, I am a huge fan of Shadow Dark RPG. If you want to see more about Shadow Dark, you can look at my playlist where I have done prep for my Shadow Dark game for 20-so episodes. That's all there. Today we're going to talk about stat blocks, monster stat blocks, in particular... When are the right times to use complicated stat blocks versus the right times to use simple stat blocks? Uh, there are now that 5e has expanded in so many different ways we have lots of different kinds of monsters that we can use in our game it's not even though they're all fully 5e compatible it's not like you always just find monster stat blocks the design of monsters varies a lot across different publishers and across different product types for example your 2014 D&D monsters were designed one particular way the ones being designed by for by cobalt press for black flag and for tales of the valiant are designed a different way Um, uh, the, the ones that were designed for the Monsters Menagerie by Level Up 5e, that's done a different way. And Flea Mortals has a whole different approach. The MCDM book Flea Mortals has a different way that they handle their monsters. And then uh, I have the book that I wrote with Teos Abadia and Scott Gray called Forge of Foes, which handles monsters a completely different way. The neat thing is there's all of these different monster styles. Uh, and they're all fully compatible with 5e you can play them in any version of 5e that you are running you can plug them in and out you can try one monster in one type you can try another monster in another type i have been doing some of this in my own games and it's been really interesting and insightful and i wanted to share some of the experiences that i had for example i've been running some large battles where i would use like a big meaty chunky monster from flea mortals and then i would have a bunch of smaller monsters that were kind of support monsters but i would just use straight forge of foe stat blocks for them those and the advantage is i don't have to manage a whole ton of different stat blocks that all have lots of crunchy bits to them i can put all the crunchy bits on one particular monster stat block and then have other guys that are throwing damage out and are taking damage in and are moving around and doing stuff but i don't have to give them a lot of features i don't have to worry about a lot of features sometimes i can just improvise the abilities that they that they get so we're going to like examine a couple of different kinds of stat blocks and think about how we can switch these up so we're going to look at three different kinds of stat blocks uh, from a degree of super, super simple to super crunchy with lots of different abilities. And we're, and then one that's kind of in the middle. So the three that I'm going to pick on today, three books that I think are all outstanding. One, of course, is my own book. Two other books were my, some of my favorite books that have been published for for monsters, which is the Level Up Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie, my favorite book of, it's my favorite monster book, period, but it, well, outside of Forge of House, uh, but it is more straightforward, standard monster stat blocks that you would expect and then flea mortals which is like what i would consider to be like an advanced monster book monsters that really have a particular focus on tactical play so i think we're kind of spanning a good wide range of different stat blocks so in forge of foes we have this idea called general use combat stat blocks and the idea here was to make these very easy reskinnable monster stat blocks at a particular challenge ratings that meant you could use them across the wide range of dd all the way from from cr18 creatures uh, up to cr15 so and four different stat blocks cr18 one cr2 cr4 cr7 cr11 and cr15 and as you can see even these big ones these high level cr11 stat blocks are very, very straightforward, right? They have 11 uh, AC, 17, 165 hit points. Uh, they make four attacks, plus nine for each attack, 18 damage. So you don't see, there's no special abilities on this. The idea of Forge of Foes is you would grab one of these, co- these core stat blocks, and then you can plug in monster powers, which you can find in the books to kind of fill them out. You can also sort of improvise different monster powers, which is what I've been doing in some of my games. So I find that it's really easy to use just a core stat block, particularly for a monster that isn't the focus of the battle, but is somebody that's around so an example that i can describe is a vampire fight that i had in my relatively high level they're level 12 characters and they were fighting a a vampire matron mother like a mother a a high reverend mother of uh, this evil goddess and she was a vampire and i used for that for her her stat block was really important so for her i used the van glower stat block from flea mortals because i wanted a big nasty crunchy vampire now i also have the advantage that i wrote van Glauer for flea mortals so i kind of knew what i was getting into but as you can see like van Glauer as a as a stat block is a full page lots of different things going on first of all very high power cr19 i reduced the power a bit because it's cr19 with all the dudes that i threw in the battle was going to be too much so, but spear sacrificing spears for legendary actions, spear attacks that they could make. Uh, he can make, you know, or she, because she, I reskinned her as him into her. Um, Sanguinous, the big long sword that was hacking people and doing tons of damage. Um, you know, some of the villain actions, I didn't end up using all of the villain actions, but I had them there. The withering gaze, um, you know, lots of different things that the beguiling bonus action. So lots of different things that Van Glauer and that in my version of it was able to use in combat. But I certainly didn't want this level of complication for all of the monsters. Now, there are some really excellent vampire stat blocks that aren't very difficult, like the the, vamp, the CR5 vampire spawn in here, right? It has a very straightforward stat block that isn't really crazy with inhuman speed, bite and claw attacks and everything like that. So very straightforward. The, the main vampire stat block is a little crunchier, right? The CR 13 is a little crunchier. And then I said, okay, but I want to have like vampire sword masters. Uh, I wanted human priestesses that supported her, but that aren't vampires. I wanted armored Hezro that she had summoned from this, this, this sang- the, the the realm known as the blood vaults. A I made another plane called the blood vaults, which is like the, the plane of evil vampire types. And I wanted Hezro, like vampiric Hezro, these big, nasty, armored Hezro demons that were summoned. So I wanted great big brutes. I wanted vampire priestesses, or no, human priestesses, vampire swordmasters, and the high priestess, as who's a vampire. And what I decided to do, which worked very well, was I used, look at that art. Isn't that art great? Van Glower's art is fantastic. Really, really awesome i used the van Glauer stat block for the main one and then i used forge foe stat blocks for everything else now in my case I use uh, it's probably the equivalent of specials. I actually used a CR a lot of CR fives, so I jumped it up one challenge rating by use by using the stats for monster challenge ratings uh, at CR five. But it was I just all I did was have to write down one line of the stats for that, and I improvised everything. I, I gave the vampires like quick movement again. I probably could have used that vampire spawn, and that probably would have been just fine. Looking at it, I was like, I probably should have used that. But I gave them very similar abilities. They had ability bonus action to beguile somebody and make them kneel. It never worked and then we had a big joke between the swordmasters. that does it even do we even have a thing do we even have the ability to beguile i don't even think we have that ability so that was kind of funny but i did have them do some fast movement so they could move around and then i just gave them multiple attacks and i didn't have them do drain life or anything like that the hezros i used something closer to this like cr7 i think i used cr6 but they were great big guys that moved around they, they punched i took one of these attacks and turned it into a necrotic aura so that anybody that started within 15 feet of them took About half of the damage, so it's 17, they took about 8 points of damage for starting near the Hezro uh, from the Necrotic Aura around the Hezro. And then I gave it one less attack, so it did 2 attacks instead of 3 attacks. They ended up taking more damage from the Aura than they did from the attacks, which isn't surprising. But all I needed were these really simple stat blocks for my small monsters, and then a great big crunchy stat block for my main monster. And that worked really well. And when I think about how to use these different monster stat blocks in different ways, that to me is the real answer about when to use one over the other which is how much does the abilities of a monster matter to the battle there are some times for big battles where you want to have monsters with lots of interesting abilities and then there's times where it kind of doesn't matter no one cares the reality is that players are interested in watching the players do interesting things and gms are busy keeping the story going and managing the tactics of the bigger monsters so it's i think that that is a balance that we can take when we're looking at which monsters we want to run at any given time i actually think you can go really really far running 5e games with just the stat blocks that we have in forge of foes i've started doing that more and more in my own games and i know i'm like eating my own dog food here but really like it feels like i can use the stat blocks per CR table to run pretty much any monster that I want and I'm experienced enough to know how to add new abilities and powers to those monsters when I want to by improvising them uh, when the monster comes on the table so we can kind of look at it and say you know you you look at an example of like the Myrmidon, right it's very very small stat block right really really thin no special abilities no special defenses nothing else where we just have the armor class the hit points number of attacks we have some base saving throws but you can move these around you're actually supposed to move these around base Based on the type of monster and what which saving throw makes sense for them to have uh, some other basic stuff that you would have in here. But then the main thing is the number of attacks they do and the number of da- the amount of damage that they do per the attacks. Very, very simple kind of going as a level up. If you would a level up from that would be the monsters from the monsters menagerie level up advanced five E I've described this book many, many times. I think it is a very, very well balanced core monster book. I really, really like it. And whenever I am using core stat blocks, this is the, uh, this is the book that I go to. I use, I haven't touched the 20 and not because I'm like, Oh, I hate it. But like, I find these monsters so better designed that I go to this book way more than I go to the 2014 dungeon mess or the 2014 monster manual. This one has completely replaced the 2014 monster manual for me just because I find it better balanced. i like the monsters. There's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more tools in it. And you can kind of see the stat blocks here are a little thicker. So you have like a cutthroat, a CR one cutthroat. They don't have a version of this, right? We had, does a sneak attack and has a sneak attack. attack. All pretty basic stuff. Like really fun clearly like acts like a rogue but isn't totally out of hand with all of the stuff that it does very straightforward sort of stat box. i'm picking on the npcs because i know the npcs kind of fit this style your bandit captain bandit captain is actually pretty similar to the bandit captain that you would find in 2014 which is the other nice thing about this book is when the 2014 monster manual did it well they copied a lot of that over here because it's all under the, the the system resource document um, but you're going to get much more straightforward monsters, uh, in a book like this that have abilities that you might want to use when you want to give them some other things like a cult fanatic has spells, inflict wounds, blindness and deafness, hold person, sacred flame. Right, The Cult Fanatic in here has a lot of different things it does. But sometimes you don't need all of this stuff. You're like, look, I'm going to have a battle with 12 Cult Fanatics. I don't need all of them doing a bunch of different kinds of spells. I just want them pouring damage out. right? They want to be doing Cult stuff. And that's when you're like, okay, I'm going to pick instead my... I'm going to use the Brute stat block, also CR2, but I'm going to reskin it to a Cult Fanatic. And it's going to say CR2 Cult Fanatic. Same stats, only instead of having like a Strength... Uh, you know, a con save, it's going to be a wisdom save, you kind of move these things around, but then you say, no, the cult fanatic fires two cult blasts, like necrotic blasts, you have to think a little bit more than that, like what kind of cultists are they? Are they like an aberration cultist? Well, then they, you know, they call tentacles out of the ground that reach around and grab you, and they do plus five to hit, and nine damage, and they do two attacks. Right. You don't need all the other spells. You don't need all the other stuff. You don't need that crunch because you're running nine of these dudes. Right. Well, you don't have to figure out all the spells that they have. And it's pretty rare when you even need any of them to do a spell. But if you really need one of them to do a spell, then you can just improvise the spell. But generally speaking, especially when you have lots of monsters, that's when you want their stat block to be super simple. Going to kind of the other extreme, we have the monsters from Flea Mortals. So then you kind of look at the difference and we talk about the cult fanatic is a good example that we can use across all three of these, right? The human death cultist is sort of the cult fanatic of the flea mortals book now it's cr4 instead of cr2 so it's a little bit of a meteor a meteor creature than we would have from ours from our cr2 uh, and it's got like a scythe attack that does extra necrotic damage that's cool it's got a death bolt so it can do plus six to hit 14 damage Blackfire blessing cultist empowers up to 10 non-minion allies within 30 feet for one minute uh, and or until the cultist dies each creature's weapons burn with black fire dealing an extra two necrotic damage so it's got this support role you can see that's got a support role where it's doing things rise my minions. The the cultist chooses up to three creatures within 30 feet who died in the last minute. These creatures return to one hit point, but they can't regain hit points and they die after one minute. So he can bring guys back from the dead life from death. When a creature, the cultist can see within 30 feet fails a death, save or dies. The cultist siphons their fault. faltering life energy. The cultist chooses a creature within 30 feet of the cultist who isn't unconscious that gains regains 14 hit points. So it's channeling life. Really cool thematic. Cultist. It's not based on like the 5e standards of like, here's the different spells, the cleric spells that we would expect to have. It does lots of different things, but you probably don't want to run 12 of these guys, right? That'd be a lot of stuff to handle. This is a crunchier death cultist. This would be a great boss monster for like C art or level two players, right? Level two characters. This would be a really do this and then a bunch of like regular good old cultists, and you've got a really cool fight excellent boss fight stat block but not the kind of one that you'd want to run even not even as minions but even if you've got like a main guy you wouldn't want to throw five of these guys as like their support guys instead you probably want to go with a simpler stat block of like hey we just hammer out damage right we you, you can take away all these other abilities and focus because they only get one death bolt it's really these other abilities that are making the cr4 death cultist the cr4 death cultist but if instead you just want it to be pure damage output, you can do like your CR4 specialist. And and this is the one that you'd use when you need a lot of them. Where they do two attacks, plus six to hit, 14 damage in each attack. 28 damage. It's way higher damage output than the Death Cultist does. But it's much more straightforward. They're just throwing damage out there. And now you got a bunch of guys throwing 28 damage uh, with each of them. So... I hope this kind of gives you a good example of how we have all of these different kinds of stat blocks from very, very simple stat blocks that you could find in like Forge of Foes to more interesting tactically superior stat blocks that you would find in a book like Flea Mortals and then sort of the mid range stat blocks that you would find in a book like the Monstrous Menagerie and the best cases to use one over the other. You know, using complicated stat blocks for big main monsters, named monsters that you want to have, and then using very simple stat blocks for all of the minions that are kind of off to the side. Not the minion minions from, like, Flea Mortals, but just smaller monsters that are kind of on the screen and then off the screen quickly. That's when simpler stat blocks can really get along well. Every month on the sly flourish patreon we do a monthly q a it's a new post and you can um um, patrons can post any question about ttrpgs that they have there i answer every question that's there every friday morning uh some questions make it to the show other questions become catalysts for other articles or videos that i shoot and it's a great feature of the patreon of sly flourish to the patrons thank you so much bro from another mo says our our group our group's 5e campaign is ending soon. Group wants to try Shadow Dark. Super excited. Been thinking of how to deal with character death. I know my feelings are against Shadow Dark ethos, but I wanted to keep the group together level-wise but have consequences for death at the same time. My current path would be if someone dies, the whole party would reset experience to zero at the current level they're at. The goal is to make it so people don't just Leroy Jenkins to get a and to get a reroll character and promote teamwork more. Is this a bad idea? I.e. someone dies at level four, everyone starts back at level four with zero experience and the new character joins. So what I do in my group is the character who dies resets to zero at their current level. The new character they bring in starts with zero experience at the last level that they had for a character. I would not, i i would not in my games reset the whole group i think that that could add some animosity and like people get angry particularly because characters die for dumb reasons and then they feel bad because everybody else lost their experience points too i would see if it's a problem i would see if you have people who are more eager to let their character die when they don't have a lot of experience than those that do but i would not really worry about it i would instead what i what i found to work is that if you remove the experience that they currently have that's enough of just the character that's at risk uh that's enough of an incentive for not to to not die so that works for me i'd be a little worried of this one making other people angry because like oh you did something and even if they didn't like leroy jenkins that they just did something dumb they'll feel bad the other players will be mad i don't i don't really dig that so i i think that for me the character their experience resets to zero with their new character they start at the same level they were only their experience resets to zero and that's usually enough Unfrozen caveman role player says, I love the undead section and flee mortals, including the vampires. We were just talking about him. Uh, Exsanguinating mist is great, uh, but I missed the shape changer treat. What was the design decision between omitting shape changer and changing the misty escape to a teleport? I'm probably going to add those back in, but I'm really curious to know what the reasoning was behind the change. P.S. Love Von Glauer, thinking of using a stat block for Strahd and a cursor Strad. Strahd. I actually kind of wish I'd made Von Glauer a lower level. I don't remember if I was commissioned to do it at that high level or if I said, hey, what did we do it at this level? I really wish he was a CR 14 instead of a CR 19 so that he better fit with that. You could replace that. You could replace Strahd with him, but that didn't work out. The answer is we didn't put it in there because of space and time and like what we wanted to focus on. When we were designing a monster, we wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure that everything that was on there was something that was really gonna be impactful. And I'd sitting down, shape changing of course, is a big feature of a monster, of a vampire in particular but is it really as important as the other things that a vampire does? So I think we kind of agreed to just take shape changing off the table. And as you say, you can always add the shape changer trait to a monster and make it change shape and still have like the kind of same abilities that it has. And I mean, maybe if we had more space, we could have done more vampires that did that shape changing uh, that were different than the ones that did sort of the mind control stuff. So, but that was a really reason with space and making sure that we focused the stat blocks on the things that we felt were most important to get across the idea that, Hey, this is a vampire. Michael S. says, one issue I'm finding is remembering what secrets and clues I've dished out without the need to keep going back to the session logs. This is also an issue with my session notes. Do you have any, Do you think there's a good way I could track these things or have any ideas around it? I know you have previously said campaign and session tracking isn't your strong point, but any thoughts would be appreciated. I guess the question that I have, I think I gave this to you on Patreon, is why do we need to look at old secrets? If the secret has been revealed, that's now information the characters know. We've handed it to the players. Do they know it? This gets in that idea that we don't want to have a database of secrets that we look at and say every week we have to look at the 238 secrets that we've dished out over the the game we really want to only focus on the secrets that matter for the next game i feel i kind of use the stephen king philosophy that if it's really important you'll remember and if it's not then you won't that i think it's pretty rare for you to have to go back to old secrets and say oh what was that secret from three sessions ago now you can always just go back through your old session notes and kind of look for them if you use a digital tool you could do a search for them But I still kind of push back. What I would push back on is, do you really need to look at those secrets? Why do you need to look at those secrets? What are they giving you that you don't have? You know, instead, like, looking at the story the way it exists now, thinking about the new secrets that are coming up, that's usually enough. It it can't hurt to review the ones you did from last week, and maybe that's enough to kind of look at what secrets you did last week compared to, like, this week. But generally, I don't – I I, I would say, you know – I mean, you're asking my advice and my advice would be hang on with a looser grip. You probably don't need to look at those secrets. You probably don't need them. They're probably not driving the the whole story of your game as much as you think they are. Instead, you can kind of look at, hey, the big ones still matter, but new secrets are new secrets and the new drive of like what we have here is really good. So I would, I would say, you know, honestly, you probably don't have to hang on to those too tight. That's my thought nick w says as i watch your DD is not 5e videos i'm generally on board but i have noticed a snarl if my friends who don't know rpgs ask me to introduce them to dnd i feel compelled to reach for proper actual DD. i'm totally happy using monsters and magic items from non D 5e but i feel weird handing out these new players any book that isn't official DD. so when i'm acting as an ambassador to folks who want to play DD for the first time how should i think about the topic that 5e isn't just DD? those two things are mutually exclusive Hey, if your friends want you to teach them D&D, teach them D&D, right? The starter sets are great, right? And it's a great way for them to get an understanding of what D&D is like. But you can also, it's not really a matter of like saying you can't play D&D. D&D is not all of 5e, Right. That the, the two the two things are not equal to one another. Five E is a large envelope of different products, different publishers, different total systems, but D and D is in there. And D is by far the most popular one. So I'm not bashing D D and saying D and D is not five E as in get D D out of here. D D is five E. Five E is not D and D. That's the trick. One is a subset of the other. Right. That that D&D is one of the many 5E systems that exist. That's the main point I'm trying to get across. And when your players want to play D&D, teach them D&D, grab the starter set, grab the player's handbook, play D&D. Right. And as you said, you know that you can try other non D&D stuff on your side of the table, different monsters and different campaigns and different adventures and anything you want. And then eventually when they're into it, then you could say, by the way, there's also other supplements we could use. Or we could, if you wanted to have more mon- more, more crunch for m- martial classes, how do you feel about trying level up advanced 5e? It's just like the DD you've been playing, but it adds these other things. So you and you don't have to do that, right? Like you, you don't have to. I'm not saying like we need to wean ourselves off of DD. That's never been my point. It's never been my drive. I love DD. I still play DD. My players love DD. Never have I worried about playing DD. I only worry when we use the two of them synonymously and and are basically saying all of that other stuff published by all these other companies that offer tremendously valuable stuff uh, that we don't even consider those. We should consider those, but we should, of course, consider D&D. So when your players are asking you to play D&D, play D&D, right? If you're teaching new people d and I would still start with D&D. If, if I had brand new people that said, we'd like to play D&D, I would start with D&D. Absolutely, because I think the starter sets are great. I think that when they understand that, then that expands them into lots of areas. So I think that's really important. So I never, you know, I guess the tricky bit is like, I've never said that we should not play DD or that we should move away from DD and go to other stuff. My point is like, the 5e ecosystem is huge and has lots of different systems and lots of different games and lots of different supplements and lots of little ideas that we can bring into our game from all these different sources. And DD is a big one in those. So, of course, we can continue to play DD. Scott M says, How do you handle continuity issues regarding plot hooks in your Shadow Dark adventure when several characters die off? Last session, everyone except for the fighter died in a very lethal encounter. Now the fighter is the only character that has a solid reason to even be in the dungeon. I had come up with a random logic on the fly for their next character to show up in the dungeon within a turn or two. Now that I have to determine whether or not I should try to incorporate dead plot hooks or just ignore them and make new hooks, potentially leading to an aimless game of Shadow Dark with no clear direction or end. Yes, I have hit this problem in my own shadow dark game i don't know if it's like a core issue of shadow dark i don't think shadow dark's main motivation is going into dungeons and collecting treasure that's its real goal so if you build characters that are going to dungeons to collect treasure you always have this sort of common reason for why the characters would go there but if you are running a little bit more of a story focused game you might need something else and i have the trick for you that has worked well for me which is set up some core factions three to five different factions you could even have just one but you some number of factions probably no more than five And the quests and the goals are tied to the faction and new characters are also tied to the faction and therefore new characters already have the quest and goal tied to it. So an example is if I have Titania, the fairy queen, and the fairy queen's quest is we are trying to gather up all of the old fairy magic items before the world is destroyed and so she has sent out hunters and 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 delvers to go find all of these things and bring them back to her so that they can go to the land of the fairies before the world is destroyed we now have a quest that's built in which is any character that's tied to titania can say oh i'm down here because i'm going to recover relics that uh, to bring them back to the fairy queen so if they die and another one comes up they could have the same one you uh, then you could have a series of these so i have titania who's trying to recover relics i have haldren who's trying to stop mugdoblub i have uh who are my other factions i have the sort of anti knights of saint yidrith who are the the hunters of the knights of saint yidrith who are trying to stop this evil templar group from murdering everybody in the place and I have the town folk of Aklaklik, the goblin village, who want to save the people of Aklaklik from getting destroyed by Mugnablam. So that way, the new characters, when they come in, one thing is they are tied to one of those factions. They are not coming in without any drive or motivation. If they're tied to the faction, they have the same quest. And if you have a four, then they can still have some variety of why they're here. But all of the quests could still drive for why they're in this particular dungeon. So it can still work out. Uh, but that idea of having factions that are separate from characters so that when a new character comes in after another one died, they can tie to a faction, and that faction is what ties them to the quest that brings them on the adventure, that has worked really well for my game. It means I no longer really have to worry about new characters and why they're here. We already know that they're tied to the other ones. But the main one is like anytime you're in a dungeon, you want to make sure that all four factions have some reason to be in that dungeon. Because if the if the faction quest is not involving in that, then that character doesn't have a reason. But even if that was a case, then when a new character comes in, you just say, pick one of these three, because those three have a tie to this dungeon. You can, you can kind of limit that scope of what faction they're connected to based on the current context of them coming in. I think that works really well. It worked really well for me and hopefully it works well for you. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. It is such an exciting time to be a fan of this hobby. I'm really, really filled with great joy. I get to go play a game very, very shortly thank you all for hanging out with me if you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this from me please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter you get a free adventure generator PDF for signing up and you get a weekly RPG related email sent right to your inbox it's perfectly it's absolutely free to sign up you can also support me directly on Patreon you get access to the Patreon Q&A City of Arches source book a dedicated discord server a whole bunch of tools to help you run your games lots of different things you get lots of Forge of Foes stuff that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. you get lots of really great stuff and you can support me on the Sly Flourish bookstore by picking up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, Forge of Foes, and all of my other books in the Sly Flourish bookstore. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG. Bye-bye.